Section 8 of Brain and Personality. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Brain and Personality or the Physical Relations of the Brain to the Mind by William Anna Thompson. Evolution of a Nervous System Part 2 In animals below the vertebrates, the nervous system being composed of fewer series of centers and all acting alike to their afferent stimuli, they proceed with such uniform and rigid habits of action that, like other examples of unmitigated consistency, it occasionally leads to inconvenient results. While sojourning in Syria, I was told that the old country round Mount Lebanon was dismayed one year by the news that a vast army of marching locusts was coming from the eastern desert. The governor of the district ordered a regiment of soldiers to aid the people to construct a great rampart of eighth bushes to be set on fire as the locusts came up to it, hoping thus to save the gardens of Beirut. These locusts always up straight ahead, deviating neither to the right nor left, and on coming to a house went up its stone walls, over it and down it, as if it were a level place, and in such inconceivable numbers that an American resident described the noise of the great host passing over the roof as like to that of a tremendous hailstorm. At every green leaf on the way each took a bite, and then went on for the next one to take his bite, until in an incredibly short time not a green thing could be seen. When they reached the prepared heaps of eath and these were set on fire, the locusts marched on without passing, until in a brief time they put the bonfires completely out. As the sea was not far off, everybody hoped that they would take to serve bathing, and so they did. Just as certain injurious political crowds among us can always be depended upon to match up to the polls and vote the straight ticket, when the vanguard reached the waves, like all good true locusts, in they upped, followed by all the rest, till the below seemed to roll only grass uppers. Not did the scene and until the last of the rear guard, faithful to the great law of efferent, centric and efferent, had skipped over the heaps of his dead comrades to make his last jump into the blue waters of the Mediterranean. In structure, the spinal cord has its centers located within, and like all gangliolic matter, they are of a gray color. There is a special arrangement, however, of its cells according as they subserve an efferent or efferent function, the efferent cells of a more or less rounded shape been grouped more toward the posterior segment of the cord where the afferent nerves enter, and the nerves with afferent functions, usually larger and of a stellate shape, being grouped toward the anterior segments where the motor nerves emerge. At the top of the spinal cord, as it enters the skull, is developed the final supreme center of the entire system, the medulla oblongata that fit and most responsible ruler of the whole world and beautifully regulated spinal mechanism, that center in which a small injury would threaten life more than it would in the brain, as it may cause instant death, 
for the medulla holds the reins of the pulse and of the breath in its hands, while at the same time it acts as the intermediary between the various regions of the brain above and those of the spinal cord beneath. But the chief feature about this remarkable nervous apparatus, the spinal cord, is that however intricate its adjustments be, so that by it the most complicated and combined movements are executed, enough as we have seen to wear all the aspects of design or purposive muscular act, yet from first to last its operations are purely automatic. This is because its workings are all organized by the steady unvarying operation of efferent stimulus. Without that, there would be no centric change, and without centric change, there would be no efferent impulse. Originally, nothing could be more a facet than efferent stimuli, and thus, at first, the centric change would be correspondingly so. But when the same efferent stimulus recurs over and over again, the centric change becomes fixed by this repetition, and the efferent impulse follows suit, till a special mode of working, or, in other words, a special nerve function is established. A watch or a clock, therefore, could not be a more automatic mechanism than is a spinal nerve center. The desirability of distinctly recognizing the part taken by efferent habits in the organization of nervous function leads me, at the risk of being tedious, to cite another illustration of the kind. The nervous mechanism of the act of breathing is a primary example of such organization. The efferent stimulus in the form of the sensation of the want of air coming up by the efferent vagus nerve leads to the successive efferent muscular movements of inspiration and then of expiration with all the regularity of the swing of a pendulum. Now let the habit of checking the return swing of the pendulum during expiration be contracted especially in childhood, the habit forming age, by prolonged coughing, as in whooping cough or in measles, and there is danger of this bad habit in breathing lasting for years or for life in the form of the wretched disease, asthma. It should be noted that the act of coughing always occurs in expiration, thus interrupting the regular rhythm of expiration quickly following inspiration. In asthma, the air enters easily in inspiration, but is checked in expiration, so that this latter, instead of being equal to inspiration, as in health, may in asthma be five times as long. Once the normal habit of breathing become deranged, the respiratory center may be at the mercy of a great variety of efferent stimuli, which are never perceived in health. Thus, one form of asthma is called cat asthma because the mere entrance of a cat into the room will start the patient wheezing, though wholly ignorant that the animal is near. The son of a medical acquaintance of mine knew immediately by his breathing that some buckwheat was in the house, though it was in his own room on the top floor, and it was found that he could have surreptitiously brought the forbidden article into the kitchen and was mixing it with water to make cakes for herself. I have had more than one patient who could sleep well in New York, but who would be sure to be awakened by an attack of asthma if they spent a night in Brooklyn across the East River. Other asthmatics have their attacks induced by the most trivial derangement of digestion, and but few of them can safely eat a hearty meal at night. Such whimsicalities of this complaint might be multiplied indefinitely only to illustrate that there is always risk in interfering with old normal nervous habits.
the constant coughing of chronic bronchitis will frequently induce its form of asthma in adults, which, however, generally subsides if the bronchitis be cured. But it is in the medulla that we meet with special illustrations of a third great law of nervous development. To return for a moment to our first principle of discipline, that principle, whether applied in armies or anything else, implies some source or sources of authoritative restraint, generally a regular hierarchy of commanders, one ranking the other. Nowhere in any instance is this great principle of discipline so impressively demonstrated as in the army, so to call them, of active centers in the nervous systems of the higher animals. A constantly recurring word in books on nervous physiology is inhibition, as descriptive of the workings of certain nerves or nerve centers. One example will illustrate what this word refers to. By stimulating with an electric current, one nerve which comes down from the medulla to the heart, you make the latter beat more powerfully and rapidly. By stimulating another nerve which also descends from the medulla to the heart, that organ at once begins to beat more slowly, stimulate that nerve still further and the heart beats very slowly, still more again and it comes to a full stop. Now cut that same nerve and the heart bounds off to the most rapid tumultuous beating. As an eminent physiologist characterizes it, this nerve brittles the heart, for when it is served, the heart behaves like a horse who throws its rider and straight away takes to racing. For the nerve is in the inhibitory or governing nerve of the heart, that nerve which makes the heart a strong heart by governing it. If you suddenly tell a man a dreadful piece of news, and his pulse scarcely quickens or quivers, is he a weak man or has he a weak heart? Another man sees a street boy preparing to snowball him, and at once his pulse runs up to 120. What is the difference between these two men? The difference lies in the cardiac branches of their vagus nerves. Now, as we investigate the functions of this great law of inhibition in the nervous system, we find that as IA centers are developed in this series, their influence is shown not only in new powers or functions superadded to the older ones, but that they constantly inhibit or, in other words, control the action of the lower centers. Thus, in the frog, a mass of centers called the optic lobes are developed just above the medulla. Now, as long as the lobes are connected with the spinal cord, you may stimulate the afferent spinal nerves of the frog and but little or no reflex movement will result. Cut, however, the connecting tracks and thus free the cord from the control of these higher centers and the slightest ticking of the skin will then make the frog kick actively. After we pass the medulla oblongata, we find ourselves proceeding along large tracts of nerve fibers which soon present us with a series of considerable swellings along their course and which are found to be altogether now or differently constructed masses of gray matter or ganglia as they are called. This new ganglia proved to be chiefly portentous development of the efferent system, causing in fact the efferent segments to take the lead in nervous life, for they are no less than the centers of the special senses of sight, smell and hearing, larger or small according to the needs of the animal for each sense respectively. Now, when we use the term special senses, we mean a form of sensation. But what is sensation itself? Nobody knows. All definitions of sensation amount to saying that sensation is sensation, 
For to call it an act of the consciousness is, when translated into Anglo-Saxon, to announce that the thing which feels, feels. This something called consciousness makes its first appearance in vertebrate after the whole mechanism of the spinal cord and medulla has been completed, and the lower vertebrates seem to need but little else for their world than this special sense ganglia, which are proportionately developed in them according to their life habits. However, even in them, two other swellings appear, which are relatively wonderfully small in many of these animals considering their great imports, as they are no less than the beginnings of the cerebral hemispheres, or what we call the brain in ourselves. The accompanying figure tell the story of their evolution. Figure 1. The brain of a lamprey. In figure 1, we have the sensory ganglia and the brain of a lamprey. A small fish often mistaken for an eel from its form. Those rounded masses, O1, represent his olfactory lobes, for his habits require him to be good at smelling. Then the two large swellings below are his optic lobes, while those two insignificant spheres between Marti are his cerebral lobes or brain, or all that he has to cogitate with. Figure 2. Brain of a carp. Figure 2 shows the sensory and intellectual apparatus of a carp. He does not smell at all, so he has no olfactory lobes, but his optic lobes are large compared with his brain or mental equipment. Figure 3 represents the apparatus of that old friend of the physiologist, the poor frog in which is mechanism for thinking. Though larger than that of fishes, is scarcely larger than his optic lobes. Figure 3. Brain of a frog. M, in each of these figures, represent the medulla. In some fishes, such as the carp, when the ganglia which correspond to the cerebral hemispheres are experimentally removed, they do not seem to mind it at all, for even then there is little, if anything, to distinguish them from perfectly normal animals. They maintain their natural attitude and use their tails and fins in swimming with the same vigor and precision as before. They not only see but are able to find their food. If worms are thrown into the water where they are swimming, they immediately pounce upon them. If a piece of string similar in size to a worm is thrown in, they are able to detect the difference and they drop it after having seized it. They even, to some extent, distinguish colors, for when some red and some white wafers are thrown into the water, the fish almost invariably select the red in preference to the white. It is much the same with the frog. If care be taken to keep the frogs alive after the removal of their cerebral lobes until they have quite recovered from the injury, brainless frogs will behave just like full-brained frogs under like circumstances. They will crawl under stones or bury themselves in the hearth at the beginning of winter, and after the period of hibernation is over, they will come out and diligently catch the flies which are buzzing around in the vessels in which they are kept. Figure 4. Brain of a Pigeon But Figure 4, which shows the brain of a pigeon, illustrates how much higher in the scale birds are than fishes and amphibia. The original basal ganglia, which we have been considering, are beginning now to be completely overshadowed by the cerebral lobes, and hence, after their removal, Birds show much greater alterations in their behavior. Memory and volition seem annihilated, and the birds do not seek their food. 
But if the octoclubs are uninjured, the bird will walk around the room, avoiding obstacles. It will fly from one place and alight securely on another, always preferring a perch to the floor. And if placed on a swinging cord, it balances itself perfectly with the to and fro movement. If placed in a special attitude, it ruffles its feathers and shows fights, thus illustrating that pugnacity antedates brains, or, as physiologists express it, belongs to a lower level. In the ascent from birds to mammals, the development of the cerebral ganglia or lobes grows from mere bulbous swellings into great masses which cover more and more the sensory ganglia, until in the monkey these are only buried under their mass. In man, these original centers at the base of the skull are relatively so insignificant that we are accustomed to leave them out of consideration and to speak of his cerebral hemispheres as his brain. As regards the function of the brain and their relations, the first conclusion we come to is that an unmistakable promotion, so as to speak, has occurred in the mammalian brain of the great functions of sensation, consciousness and the power of directing movement from the basal ganglia of fishes, amphibia and birds up to the great cerebral ganglia above. Remove this from a mammal and it is then far from acting as if it still had the same degree of consciousness or power of movements left, which those lower in the scale possess. This does not prove that the cerebral ganglia have entirely superseded the original basal ganglia, for facts of disease at the base of the brain in man show that even in him, these original nerve centers still hold much of their old relations. The case instead is like the history of a prosperous firm which began business in a very small way and in humble quarters and then when it had branched out to an undreamed of extent from its lowly start, the highly trained heads of the company are found to have moved up to large and commodious apartment on the upper floors, while the original routine work is yet done, as of old in the stories below. Simple, routine work is quite enough now for the basal ganglia. Why consciousness is needed to go up higher, where the far wider operations of mind have to be carried on. Nevertheless, it is the same old firm, for we will find that its principles and modes of doing business by the heads of the establishment have not changed, though they are now handling millions where they used only to deal with a few dollars. We may not unnaturally think that in ourselves, the full range of our memories, imaginations, feelings and ideas must have a very different genesis and be according to very different laws from the simple unconscious functions of the first example of a nervous system which we have described. But a little attention to the source and sequence of our ideas, even when taking the widest sweep, will show a quite unmistakable correspondence to the old original methods of nervous work. Thus, even with that unique mental faculty of speech, which we have been considering at length, we are met at the outset with our old familiar terms, afferent and efferent, as plainly as in any function of the spinal cord. Our speech consists of words which come to us through the efferent channels of the ear and of the eye, and of the words which go from us by the efferent broker convolution. Moreover, in the order of time, the efferent preceded and created the efferent for the child first heard the words addressed to its ear, and then slowly taught Broca's convolution to respond, slowly, for it evidently understands words some time before it can learn to stammer them on its tongue.
But likewise, many of the longest and most intricate workings of our minds in act of thinking can often be traced to a single efferent excitation, which was the origin of the whole process. One familiar illustration will suffice. While you are in your reclining chair, perhaps with your eyes shut, some friends casually plays on the piano in the adjoining room an old well-known tune, which you were fond of in your father's house years gone by. A throng of memories of long ago, of faces not seen for years, of some that will never be seen here again, pictures of places and scenes, with their events and experiences, all crowd upon you till you're started by tears welling up in your eyes. You spring up at finding yourself so deeply moved by what? By that single efferent impression coming through the auditory nerve? In fact, any analysis of our ordinary mental processes made by retracing step by step our one idea has been suggested by a previous idea, and that in turn by another, will usually bring us at last to some one efferent excitation coming to us from our outside world. That is just the old way in which the efferent works, as we showed on page 148, how in the spinal mechanism it executes a sneeze. We need not to be metaphysicians to make this discovery, that our thinking so often begins first with some sensation then experience. Nor does it take long to find that many of our trains of thought, as they are well termed, are somehow habitual to us, as if we are falling into the way of thinking does. In other words, our old friend, habit, whom we have seen to be such a multiform organizer of spinal ganglia and spinal functions, seem to have organized our brains also. He has thousands of private efferent wires with which to reach our consciousness from every part of our bodies, each one of which can stir a sensation and that an idea, until it seems difficult to deny that our thoughts are but a product of this great efferent creator of nervous operations. Some may infer from these considerations that we have come to the end, that is, that we need not go further in explaining the how of our thinking selves. Many, indeed, have thought so, and have maintained that we men and women are mentally the result of our environment, that is, of our outside world creating us by its efferent excitations. The nervous system of a polyp is certainly a pure mechanism, a most mechanical affair, but the principles of its mechanism continue just the same through every step in the long series of evolution, till at last we find those virtually mechanical principles accounting for man. But in our next chapter, we will find ourselves face to face with an entirely new freshener of nervous matter. One to one brain protoplasm is as clay to the potter. End of section 8. Recording by Victoria.